Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. So I want to tell you the story about two young teenage boys named Brad and Kevin. So they're both 17-year-old boys. They both come from non-Christian homes. None of them had really studied the Bible, but both of them were invited to go to youth camp for a week. And so both boys are at camp. They both grew up in non-Christian homes. And at camp, Brad and Kevin heard the same exact sermons every night. They had the same devotions with their youth group every night. They heard the same music. They experienced the testimonies from the other students. Everything the same. But on the last night, when the pastor presented the gospel, Brad came under strong conviction, and he knew he was a sinner. He repented, and he trusted Christ for salvation that night, knowing that God had changed his life. That was Brad. On that same night, Kevin heard the same exact message. But he was unmoved. He was thinking about, when is this sermon going to get over so I can go hang out with the girls that I am kind of scamming on or flirting with? He knew he was a sinner. He, knew he was under a little bit of conviction, but it really didn't bother him. And so that night, Kevin left youth camp unchanged, unmoved, could care less, and did not have a relationship with Christ the same way that, that Brad did. So, here's the question. Hopefully my remote control is working here. Why do some people come to faith in Christ while others do not? Why do some people believe in Jesus and other people do not? When they hear the same exact message, they hear the same exact preaching, they the same exact experience. So you have three, you're left with three answers. Okay. I'm going to give you the three answers that have historically been the answers as to why some people get saved and other people don't. So here's option number one. First answer, it was all up to you. When the gospel was presented, you used your libertarian free will to trust in Jesus. You were merely spiritually sick, but you weren't spiritually dead. You were tainted by sin. Adam's sin had some impact on you, but you weren't dead in your trespasses. You weren't in bondage to sin. You had the libertarian free will to make the choice. It was up to you. You chose. That's option number one. Option number two, it was a cooperative effort between you and God. When the gospel was presented to you, the Holy Spirit convicted you. He persuaded you. He may have even wooed you to come to Christ, but you still made the final choice to come. In other words, the Holy Spirit worked up to a point to get you to make a decision, but you resisted the work of the Holy Spirit and you said no because you still had the choice to be able to say no when the Holy Spirit came to you. That's option number two. 
So option number one, it was all up to you. Option number two, it was a cooperative effort between you and the Holy Spirit. Or option number three, salvation from first to last was all of God. Since you were dead in sins and totally depraved, you were morally and spiritually unable to do anything positive to come to faith in Jesus. So God had to overcome your deadness because left to yourself, you would not want to come and you could not come unless God made you willing to come through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, which of the three answers leaves room for boasting? Option number one leaves room for boasting. Option number two leaves room for boasting. Option number three says, I can't boast because it was all of God. So, tonight, we're not going to talk about sin. I told you we're done with that. So, we're going to move into a new section, and we're calling it the order of salvation. The order of salvation. In other words, how does God save us? It's very easy just to kind of say, we're saved by God. Well, yes, under the big umbrella of salvation, there are different aspects of salvation related to time and order. So the best place to look at this is, so open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, 29 through 39. Now this is not... All of the aspects of salvation, but this passage of Scripture comes pretty close to giving us somewhat of an order logically and theologically as to how God saves sinners. Okay? So, Romans 8, verse 29. Actually, let's start back in verse 28. Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who were called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There are some aspects of your salvation that take place in order and in time. So over the next few weeks leading up to Christmas, we're going to look, actually the next 10 weeks, maybe 11, 12 weeks, okay? It may take us into next year. But let's just lay forth the order of salvation, okay? And we're going to look at this. So how does God save sinners? So number one... This happens before time. In eternity past, we call it election, predestination, foreknowledge, whatever word you want to use, God chose us before time. Okay? Then, at a point in time, God called you effectually to himself. Then, in that call, God regenerated you or made you alive or caused you to be born again. And then as a result of you being born again, we call it conversion. You repented, you believed. You personally made the choice to repent and believe in Jesus. God didn't make that choice for you. You did, but it's as a result of the things that came before it. Then 
Once you trusted in Jesus, you're justified. There's justification. When you have faith in Christ, there's adoption. You're adopted into God's family. Then there's sanctification, which is the lifelong process of growing to be more like Jesus. And then there's the perseverance of the saints, which means that God will make sure we stay Christians until the end. And then there's death. What happens to you when you die before Jesus comes back? And then there's glorification or resurrection, the final states. So you can say, I have been saved. I am being saved. I will be saved. There's different aspects of it. So let me ask you a question. When were you saved? Depends on which aspect you're looking at. When were you chosen? Before the foundation of the world. When did you trust Christ? At a point in time. Have you been in heaven yet to receive your full salvation? No, that's something in the future. So tonight, we're going to start the order of salvation. We're going to look at all these in great detail because actually this is what the kids are going to study. But let me, I just got to be honest with you. We're not keeping track with the kids because there's like seven or eight weeks on sin <laughs> with the kids. And I'm, they're teaching like 15-minute lessons and I'm teaching an hour and a half. And I'm like, we've got to get out of the total depravity and sin stuff and get to something else because it's, it's going to get, we're going to, it's, we, I can't stretch it out any longer. So they're going to eventually get to this. So I hate to say that we're moving ahead of the kids, but we just have to because the nature of what we're teaching here is a lot more complicated and it's a little bit longer. So tonight and next week, I want to spend some time on this because um, over the years, I have had people come to me and say, I don't believe in predestination. And I say, that's interesting, because the word shows up in the Bible. How can you not believe in predestination when it shows up in the Bible? I don't believe in predestination. And I say, well, you, you have to believe in predestination because it's in the Bible. So here's the question tonight. The question is not, does the Bible teach predestination? It does. That's not the question. The question is, what view or on what basis does God do the choosing? How does God choose? Why does God choose? That's the ultimate question. Not does God choose. The question is how does he choose? So we're going to look tonight specifically at the doctrine of sovereign election from the Gospel of John. Now, this comes from the mouth of Jesus. So these are Jesus' teachings. These are Jesus' words. Now, we're going to jump into John chapter 6. So turn in your Bibles to John 6. We're going to be in John the rest of tonight. We are just going to look at what Jesus teaches about this doctrine of election. And again, this may be difficult. This may be confusing. You may disagree. You may uh, have some strong feelings. I'm asking you to just look at what the Bible says and to interact with Jesus' words. So, in John chapter 6, you have the famous passage where Jesus feeds the 5,000. So Jesus feeds the 5,000, and the people are excited. Wouldn't you be excited if you got a free Happy Meal? Okay, Jesus feeds the 5,000. Everybody gets food. Hey, this guy's a traveling miracle worker. He's given us food. This is awesome. And then Jesus gets away from them. 
He walks on water. He goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And then he's in the synagogue in Capernaum on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. The people follow him over there because they're excited because they want more food. And Jesus begins to teach some very, very important teachings upon himself as the bread of life. So we're going to look at chapter 6, starting in verse 22. Okay, everybody there? So we're going to see the crowd's stunning unbelief. So this is right after the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus gets in a boat, goes to the other side, and he walks on water. The next day, the crowd is chasing after him. Let's pick up in verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, why did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, because, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. They're seeking Jesus for the wrong reasons. They want food. They're seeking him out. And then they misunderstand. What must we do to get into God's good graces? Notice what they say there in verse 27. In verse 27. Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answers them, This is the work of God that you believe. So it's kind of a weird thing. They're like, what, what should we do? What, what do we need to be doing to get saved? And Jesus says, Well, really, you don't need to do anything. The one thing you need to do is to believe. Have faith in me. Trust in me. So in verse 28, they're thinking that they have to do some type of religious work to earn eternal life. And we know from Romans chapter 3, verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. 
So what is the one thing that Jesus tells them they must do? What's the one thing? The one thing is trust. Believe. It's not believe plus a work. Believe plus get baptized. Believe plus go to church. It is simply believe. And we know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So this crowd is confused. They're like, we need to be doing a work. And Jesus says, no, don't do a work. Believe. And then the audacity of the crowd. What had just happened? That Jesus had fed the 5,000. Is that a pretty amazing miracle? But that wasn't enough for them. What do they say? Notice in verse 30. What do they say in verse 30? They said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Do you see what they're saying here? Jesus, the feeding of the 5,000 is really not that big of a deal. We want, we want more proof. If you give us more proof, then we'll believe you. You mean the feeding of the 5,000 is not enough? That was pretty miraculous. It proved that he is the Son of God. But for these seekers, that was not enough for them. They demanded proof. They wanted a sign. They wanted a proof. And what does Jesus say in Matthew 12, 39? He answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. 1 Corinthians 1, 22-23, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to, from to Gentiles. Here's what the Jews wanted. We know you fed us, but we want to see something more miraculous. We want to see something come down from heaven. Because as a matter of fact, Jesus, don't you know your Bible? In the Old Testament... God sent manna from heaven down every day so that we could eat. That was miraculous because it came directly from heaven. Jesus, can you bring manna directly down from heaven? You may be able to multiply some fish and some loaves, but can you bring bread down from heaven? That was like Old Testament power. Can you do that, Jesus? And what does Jesus say? Someone greater than Moses is standing right before you. You want bread that came down from heaven? It's not going to be manna. It's going to be me. Notice what Jesus says there. Verse 32. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Not manna. Not that wafer-like stuff back in the Old Testament. Verse 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is saying, you want a sign? You want to know the truth? You want to see something come from heaven? It's me. I'm come from heaven. And then Jesus gives us the first of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. This is the first in verse 35. What does Jesus say in verse 35? Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
the language here that Jesus uses in the original language is like this. I, I myself am the bread of life. It's a bold statement from Jesus. Because basically he's saying he's equal with the Father, that he's divine, that he alone can satisfy sinners with true salvation. So when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, what he's saying is, I am your only source of spiritual sustenance. I am your only source of salvation. I am the only one who can truly satisfy your sin and your weariness in trying to earn your salvation. Come believe in me. I'm the bread of life. Trust in me. Believe in me. Come to me. And if you do come to me, and if you believe in me, you're never going to thirst spiritually. You're never going to hunger spiritually. I'm going to satisfy your soul for eternity. Come to me in faith. That's a great invitation, isn't it? Think about it. If Jesus was in front of you, and he had just fed you, and 5,000 other people, and he says, I'm the bread of life, would you come to faith in me? What would you do? Oh yeah, Jesus, I'm coming to you in faith. You are the bread of life. You're wonderful. You're awesome. You're powerful. I'm placing my trust in you. But I want you to notice, verse 36 is a sad indictment on this crowd. After all of this miraculous feeding and Jesus just offering himself as the bread of life, what does verse 36 say? But I said to you, that you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. You've seen me with your own eyes. You've eaten the bread that I fed you with. I am the bread of life, but you're not believing. They're in unbelief. They're not coming to faith in Christ. They're still thinking about a work that they have to do to earn salvation. They're still demanding a sign from Jesus. They are totally clueless. They're not coming to faith in Jesus with him standing right in front of them as the bread of life. So that brings up a huge question. The lingering question. So here's the question you should be asking. Why? Why are they not coming in faith? In light of the amazing miracles that Jesus did, and him standing in the flesh right before them, why are they not believing? Why are they not coming to faith in Christ? Why do they not believe? Well, there's a lot of different answers you can give. Well, maybe the crowd is not believing in Jesus because they're using their free will to reject Jesus. Or maybe Jesus tried really, really hard to get them to come, but he just didn't try hard enough. Or maybe Jesus didn't have an altar call with low lighting and play just as I am 15 times and whip them up into an emotional frenzy. Okay, you may not like Jesus' answer. Here's Here's the question you've got to ask. Why are these people not believing? And you have to say, is there anything in this passage that says they're, they're not believing because they're, not, they're using their free will to resist? Here's the answer that Jesus gives. Sovereign election. Choosing. Election. So 
Let's continue reading Jesus' words because he's going to answer the question, you're not believing. Okay, Jesus, why are they not believing? Well, let's keep reading and see what Jesus says about the situation. And I want us to look very carefully at this because this may be something you've never seen before or heard before or maybe you're confused by it, but these are the words of Jesus. So I'm going to just let Jesus speak for himself. I'm going to try to explain it, and we're going to try to go slowly through this and see what Jesus says about this. Okay? So let's read verse 37. Question verse 36, you're not believing. Verse 37, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Okay, so we need to make sure that our doctrine about election comes from the Bible and not opinion. So let's look at what Jesus' words are here. First of all, the Father has given a people to Jesus. Do you see that in verse 37? All that the Father gives me. So who's giving? Who's giving? The Father is giving something to Jesus. What is the Father giving to Jesus in this passage of Scripture? It's just called at this point an all. All that the Father gives me. Okay, well let's ask the question. Who are these people that were given by the Father to Jesus? And when were they given by the Father to Jesus? Well, later on in John 10, 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Jesus often in the Gospel of John talks about these people that the Father has given to him. And then later on in John 17, 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you've given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. So, so the Father has given to Jesus a group of people out of the world to Jesus. And so this all that the Father has given to Jesus are none other than the elect, those whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world. So let's ask the question, when did the Father give these people to Jesus? When did the choosing take place? Well, let's let the Bible answer that for us. Let's go to Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. Even as He chose us, in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption through jesus christ according to the purpose of his will when did this choosing take place before the foundation of the world so regardless of what view of election you hold to it happened before time that's not the question the election, the predestination, the choosing of God took place before time. And then also Revelation chapter 13 verse 8 says this. 
Oh, there we go. All who dwell, this is talking about the mark of the beast. All who dwell on earth will worship it, the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. So we're going to explore Ephesians chapter 1 next week, but just let me just say it today. There's an all that the Father has given to Jesus out of the world, and this all was given to Jesus before the foundation of the world. This all is a specific group. Now, how do we know it's a specific group? Let's go back to verse 37. All, you guys read it with your own eyes. All that the Father gives me will what? Will come to me. So here's truth number two. These people will infallibly come to Christ alone. Does your Bible say they may come? They might come. What does it say? They will come. Now what does it mean to come? Well, in the Gospel of John, coming is the same as believing. In other words, those whom God has chosen before the creation of the world will infallibly and most certainly come to faith in Christ. You, so let me, let me say it this way. If you've been chosen, you will come. There's nobody that's not been chosen that won't come. So I've had people ask me over the years, well, if somebody's elect and they don't come, how does that work? If you're elect, you will come in time. But here's the question that you've got to ask as you're dealing with this passage of Scripture. Does everybody come to faith in Jesus? What's the answer? No. You know by your own experience and you know from the Bible that not everybody's saved, right? So not everybody comes to faith in Jesus. So the question is, okay, why does not everybody come to faith in Jesus? I asked this question at the beginning when we talked about the two boys at the youth camp. Why do some people come and other people not? And here's Jesus' answer. The reason that some people come is because they were given to Jesus by the Father. The reason other people don't come is because they were not given to Jesus by the Father. Because here's the point. If you were given, you will come. And not everybody comes. So if not everybody comes, that means not everybody was given. If not everybody was given, that means that God chose a specific group. Now we'll talk about this next week. And we're going to talk about objections because I know what the objection is at this point and we'll deal with it next week, so you have to come back. What's the big objection? That's not fair. That doesn't seem fair. God is not being just. So let me just state it tonight and we'll explore it next week. God is not unjust in choosing to save some and passing over others. Because let's ask it a different way. Is God obligated to save anybody? If God chose to save just one, would he be unjust? No. God can choose to save whom he wants to choose to save, and he can pass over others, and he's not unjust in doing it because nobody deserves salvation. 
So for him to choose some and not all is an act of mercy, not an act of injustice. We'll talk about that next week. So number one, the Father has given to Jesus this all. Number two, this all will come. And then number three, when you do come, Oh, did I, oh, the reason why everybody does not come to faith, I think I said that. The reason why everybody does not come to faith is that not everybody was given by the Father to Jesus. Not everybody was chosen or predestined before the foundation of the world. So here's the third truth. Jesus will never cast out these people who come to him in faith. Again, verse 37 packs so much theology. So in verse 37, you've got sovereign election. All that the Father gives me. Then you've got this irresistible coming. They will come. And then whoever comes, I will never cast them out. In other words, you'll never lose your salvation. And it's a very strong statement the way that Jesus uses that in the original language. In the Greek, it's what we call a double negative. It means that Jesus will know, no, not ever, ever, kind of, embellishing there. That's kind of the way the Greek says, Jesus will no, no, not ever, ever cast us out. He'll never reject us. Once we come to faith in Christ, we are secure in Christ. He will never get rid of us. He will never lose us. He'll never cast us out. We are safe. We're secure when we come. Why did we come? Because God chose us to come. When we come, we'll never be cast out. John 10, 28. I, this is Jesus speaking again, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. Again, that's a double negative in that passage. They will no, no, not ever, ever perish. So they'll not ever, ever perish. I'll never, ever cast them out. It's the strongest way Jesus says, when you come to me in faith, you are safe, you are secure, I'm going to keep you in my grip, you're never going to be lost. And then here's the fourth truth. It's kind of the same idea. But Jesus talks about this in verse 39. Jesus will lose none of these people whom the Father has given him. Look at verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So if you've been given by the Father to Jesus, you will come to Jesus and you will never be lost. So let's just talk about the progression here. Thinking about you personally, if you're a Christian, the Father gave you to Jesus in eternity past. He chose you for salvation. Then at a point in time, you came because you were given. You were given to the Father or you were given by the Father to Jesus in time you came. And once you came to Jesus, you have the assurance that he'll never cast you out. Jesus will never lose you. And that word lose, when he says, I will lose nothing, <coughs> it's the Greek word apollomy, which is where we get the word lost, which really means to perish or to spend eternity in hell. What Jesus is saying there is, once you come to me, you will never, no, not ever, ever have to suffer the pains of hell. You'll never be lost because I will make sure that you are safe and secure when you come to me. Let me ask it to you this way. If God 
chose you and it wasn't your choice to get in, do you think God's going to leave it up to you to get out? Or is he going to make sure that you don't get out because it wasn't your choice to get in, it's not your choice to get out? God keeps you safe on both ends. Romans 8, 38-39. I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, so there's four truths we've looked at. The Father has given to Jesus a people, the elect. These people will come, not might come, not may come, they will come. And when you do come, he won't cast you out. And when you do come, you'll never be lost. You'll never have to experience hell. And then, number five, these people that will come, that have been given, the elect, Jesus will raise these people up on the last day. So notice what Jesus says there. Verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So this is not only does Jesus guarantee that we're going to go to heaven, but it means that, that that's talking about future resurrection. On that final day, Jesus is going to raise us from the dead. We will not have to face judgment because we have come to Christ and we're saved. Jesus said earlier in John 5, 28-29, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So we will be raised to new life. I can't think of any stronger teaching in the Bible about election and about eternal security than right here in these few verses that Jesus gives us. Jesus says, the Father has given you to me. And if the Father's given you to me, you're going to come to me. And when you come to me, I'm never going to cast you out. And and if you come to me, you're never going to be lost. And if you come to me, I'm going to raise you up on the last day. The question then becomes, does this apply to everybody or only to those whom the Father has given to the Son. That's why Jonah 2.9, when he gets spit up out of the whale, he says salvation belongs to the Lord. We, we don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We can't do anything but receive it. Now here's a huge question I've been asked over the years. A lot of people have asked me this. How do you know if you've been sovereignly given to Jesus by the Father? I remember, I think I preached this passage of Scripture back when I was preaching through the Gospel of John. I think it was around 2015. A dear lady in our church came up to me after the service, and she's like, how do I know that I'm one of the elect? How do I know I'm chosen? How do I know that I'm, this is true for me? The answer is right here. Look at verse 40. The answer's in verse 40. How do you know that you're chosen? How do you know that you're one of the elect? How do you know you've been predestined? Verse 40. 
This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Here's the answer. How do you know that you're elect? How do you know you've been chosen? It's very simple. You've believed in Jesus. Evidence of your election is that you've come to faith in Christ. So when I talk to people, I say, listen, you can get all caught up in whether you're elected or not. That's, that's getting the cart before the horse. The main thing I want you to understand is you need to come to faith in Jesus. You need to believe in Jesus. You're not saved. Let me ask it this way. You're elect unto salvation, but you're not actually saved until you place your faith in Christ. So just because you're elected doesn't mean that you're automatically saved. There has to come a point in time where that becomes true for you and you believe. Now, the reason why you believe is because you were chosen to believe. But the simple answer is, how do I know I'm one of the elect? Because I believe in Jesus. Because what does Jesus say? All that the Father comes to me, or all the Father gives me what? Will come. So here's a simple question. Have you come to faith in Jesus? If you've come to faith in Jesus, that means you were given to Jesus by the Father. Now, this can give you great encouragement because it means that Jesus is sovereign over your salvation from first to last. And He will keep you saved. He will make sure that you're never lost. He will receive you into heaven. It's like this. I had a pastor friend that said, the doctrine of predestination is like a soft pillow to put your head on at night. You can sleep with great assurance knowing that your salvation is in the hands of God, not yourself. Now that can be unsettling for some because what do some people want? I want it to be in my hands. I want to be in control. I want to choose. I want to have the libertarian free will. I want to be the one in charge. But God here is the one that's doing all of our salvation. And I want us to always remember, go back to verse, why did Jesus have to teach this? What's the setup for Jesus teaching this? Go back to verse 36. It's right before verse 37. I said to you that you've seen me and yet you do not believe. They're not believing. Why are they not believing? How would Jesus answer it? They're not believing because they were not given to the Father. I mean, given to Jesus by the Father. Now, we go to John chapter 10. I've got it on the screen. You can turn there if you want. But Jesus is having a different conversation. So these are the people that um, we find out at the end of this chapter in John chapter 6. These people leave. They say, this is too hard of a teaching. I'm gone. I'm done. I don't want any part of you, Jesus. So they left. In John chapter 10, he's talking to a different group of people. He's talking to the Pharisees. And notice what Jesus says in John 10, 25 through 26. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Did you catch what Jesus says? You're not believing. Why? Because you're not part of my sheep. Why were they not believing in John 6? Because they weren't given to 
Jesus by the Father. Now, you would think here that Jesus misspoke. Some people like mistranslate this and say, oh, we would think the reason these Jews are not part of a sheep is because they didn't believe. In other words, when you believe, then you become a sheep. You become a sheep by believing. So let me ask you a question. Do you become a sheep by believing or are you a sheep and then you believe? You're given to Jesus by the Father and because you're given, then you believe. And if you're not believing, it's because you're not part of that, that group, the elect. And so that's not what Jesus says. He doesn't say, hey, you, become a, you believe and then become a sheep. Jesus says just the opposite. He says the reason they're not believing is because they're not his sheep. They're not the elect. The Father has not given them to Jesus. So here's the bottom line. If this crowd in John 6, and if these Pharisees in John 10 had been given by the Father to Jesus, what would happen? They would believe. But the reason they're not believing is because they're not of the sheep. Now, this may be a difficult pill to swallow. And we'll get to the objections next week because I, wanted to just, I just wanted to focus on the text today with what Jesus says. And then next week we'll look at some different texts and get into um, some objections or some questions. And we, if we have time, you may can answer those tonight and we'll answer them again next week. But yet, there's... Something in this passage of Scripture that almost sounds like Jesus is contradicting himself, but he's not. Okay, what is the principle in verse 37? Let me just ask it again. All that the Father gives me what? Will come. So if you've been given by the Father to Jesus, will you come? Yes. Okay, let's keep reading and see what Jesus says about the sinner's inability to come. Let's keep reading and see what Jesus says. Verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and i will raise him up on the last day okay they're grumbling i don't like this statement about jesus saying he's the bread of life they're grumbling they don't what what, what are you talking about jesus and then jesus says don't grumble and then he says something very interesting in verse 44 what does he say in verse 44 no one what can come And I've asked this before, is this talking about permission or ability? So for example, my wife teaches kindergarten at Ayers Elementary. If a kid comes up to her dancing around and says, can I use the bathroom? And she says, I don't know, can you? (laughs) That's not the question. The kid comes up and says, may I use the restroom? Yes, you may. So there's a difference between permission and ability. Yeah, the kid can do it because he's got the anatomical function to do it. But the question is, may he do it? So is Jesus here talking about permission or ability? He says, no one has permission to come to me. Or is he talking about ability? 
He's talking about ability because the Greek word there is the Greek word dynamis, where we get the word dynamite, or we get the word power. So the word for can, no one can, is the word for ability or power. In other words, Jesus is saying that no one has the inherent power or ability to come. Now, now Jesus, this doesn't make sense because just earlier you said, if I've been given by the Father to you, I will come, but now you're saying I can't come. That's true. You can't come. As sinners, we lack the ability to come. Not only do we not want to come, but we cannot come. So you have to ask the question, okay, why can't we come? We're going to get to the, rest, the second half of the sentence, but let's just deal with the first half of the sentence. No one can come to me. Why can no one come to Jesus? Well, it's because of our sin. Our will is in bondage. All the things we've talked about the past few weeks. Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also can you do good who are accustomed to evil? <clears throat> you can't change your sinful nature. You can't just wake up one day and say, I can, I'm, I'm going to come to Jesus because you can't. You're, you're, you're a sinner. Romans 8, 7 through 8. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You can't please God. You can't come to God. You're dead in your trespasses. You don't understand. 1 Corinthians 2.14, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So here's the question. Jesus makes a clear statement here. No one can come. Now, is that a universal statement? Does he say some people can't come, or does he say no one can come? No one can come. No one has the ability to come. You and I are in bondage to sin. We cannot come unless. The key word in verse 44 is unless. Something has to happen to us. So the question then becomes, what has to happen to us in order for us to come? Let's keep, all this in, in, let's keep all this together. If we've been given by the Father to Jesus, will we come? Yes. On our own, can we come? No. Unless something happens. So what's the second half of verse 44? No one can come to me unless something has to happen. The Father who sent me draws him. What has to happen in order for you to come? The Father has to draw you. The Father has to sovereignly overcome that deadness and that sinfulness and that inability. He's got to move in the heart of a lost person to liberate them. God frees us from sin and makes us willing to come to faith in Christ. Before God does this drawing, two things were true of you. You did not want to come, and you could not come. I don't want Jesus, and I can't come to Jesus. So this drawing has to happen. But we know that those who are given by the Father to Jesus will come. What did he say back in verse 37? Those whom the Father gave to Jesus will come. Not that they might come, 
but they will come. Why do they come? Because the Father has drawn them and has sovereignly made them willing to come. Now you may ask the question, I don't like that term draw. That makes it sound like God drags me kicking and streaming against my will into heaven. Let me ask you a question. Has anybody been dragged kicking and screaming against their will into heaven? I don't want to come to Jesus, so God's going to make me. No, God changes your will and makes you want to come. Because left to yourself, you would not want to come and you could not come. So God has to overcome that inability to give you the desire to come. He's got to draw you. And that word draw, no matter how you look at it, it's something that God has to impel or God has to do. You don't draw yourself. God has to do it. Now go down to verse 65. So look at, I want you to look at verse 44 and verse 65. If you can in your Bible, if you have like a physical Bible, and look at them side by side, and I want to, t- I want to show you the, like, the commonality between them. Okay, so look at verse 65. He said, this is why I told you. When did you tell us this, Jesus? Back in verse 44. So he's going to repeat it. It's important. He's going to repeat it twice. This is why I told you that no one can come to me. Is that what he said up there in verse 44? No one can come to me. So what does verse 44 say? Unless the Father who sent me draws him. What does verse 65 say? No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Granted. So there are... Jesus says it in two different ways. If you're going to come, you have to be drawn. If you're going to become, God has to grant you. God has to grace you. God's got to enable you to come. You won't come unless God does this work. Now, here's the rub for me when I was struggling with these truths 22, 23 years ago. In the late 90s, around 2000. This was a point, literally, when I was in my office as a youth pastor, I threw my Bible across the room and got mad at God because I'd never seen this before, and I thought I was broken because I was like, I, have, I don't have any control over this. So here's the rub that I struggled with. Now, I always believed that God had to draw or woo, or convict. That wasn't a problem for me, because it says God has to draw. My problem was, I thought that that drawing could be resisted, or that drawing could be cooperated with. Like, God draws, but you can choose to cooperate with the drawing. So God has to convict, God has to draw, but you can resist the drawing. So let me ask you a question. Based upon the context of John chapter 6, is there anywhere in this passage that says you can resist that drawing when it happens? All that the Father gives me will what? Will come. Why do you come? Because you were given. Why do you come? Because you were drawn. Why do you come? Because you were given. So if you were drawn, and you were given, and you were granted, you will come but here's the problem I realized that day and I got mad at God that God does not draw everyone 
this drawing and this granting of grace to come was only limited to the elect, and this drawing was efficacious. In other words, it was irresistible. God does not draw everybody. Because let's, let's ask it logically. If God drew everybody, then everybody would come, right? Does everybody come? No. Then therefore not everybody's drawn. And why is everybody not drawn? Because everybody's not given. So we have to go back to that limitation that there is an all that the Father has given to Jesus that all will come, not may come, not might come, will come. Why do they come? Because they were drawn to come. Can they resist that? No, because they will come. It doesn't say they, they, they can resist it and they might come. No, they will come. So the question then becomes, okay, does the Father give everybody to Jesus? No. Does the Father draw everybody? The answer has to be no. Because we also know this. Look at the last part of verse 44. This is often left off. It's also, uh, yeah, last of, the last part of verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. What happens to those that are drawn? They're raised up on the last day. Does that mean everybody will be raised up to, to eternal life on the last day? No, it's only limited to the elect. Some people will argue God draws... Up to a certain point, he's not going to violate your free will. He will draw, but ultimately you choose to take it all the way. So you can choose to cooperate with that drawing or you can choose to resist that drawing. God's not going to override anything in you because you ultimately have the choice to choose. So it's a strong influence that God draws you, but it's not an overpowering influence. So it goes back to your understanding of human sin. If you are spiritually dead and you are totally unable to come, God has to do it. If you are merely sick and a little bit depraved and not in bondage to sin and you still have libertarian free will, then God doesn't have to do it all the way. He just has to give you a push. And you can choose the rest of the way. So if you argue that everyone is drawn, then you also have to argue that everyone will be raised up on the last day which leads to universalism or the idea that everybody will eventually be saved in the end. So let's just recap Jesus' argument in John chapter 6. And it started with the question, why are these people not believing? Okay, so let's ask it backwards. Who will be drawn? Only those given to Jesus by the Father. Will those who have been given to Jesus come absolutely they will come will those who have been given to jesus and come to faith in him be cast out or lost absolutely not will those who have been given to jesus and come to faith in him be raised up on the last day and inherit eternal life yes so you've got some truths in this passage of Scripture that may be hard to swallow, but they're from the mouth of Jesus. There's election. There's a sovereign drawing that's not resistible. There's a coming to faith that has to be birthed in you because you're not able to do it on yourself. God has to do it. What you're going to hear often is this. God chooses everybody. 
Here's what you may hear. God cast a vote for you. The Satan cast a vote against you. It's your turn to choose the deciding vote which way you're going to go. You have, it's all up to you. You're not dead in sin. God, God can draw you, but ultimately it's up to you whether you're going to come. It's not limited to this all that is a select group. Now, that's John chapter 6. Let's go to John chapter 17 when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. He's praying for his disciples. He's praying for us. And I want you to look at the language that Jesus speaks here. He uses that same language of the Father giving him a people. Okay? So is everybody there? John 17, 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Now notice what it says there in verse 2. You've given me authority over all flesh. So Jesus has authority over all flesh. But there's a subset there. You've given eternal life to all whom you've given him. And the Greek grammar here is very precise. When John writes that the Father gave Jesus authority to give eternal life to all whom you've given him, the phrase have given is in what we call the perfect tense. It's a Greek tense. It's a strong past tense. It denotes the permanency of the gift. It denotes that what God has given to Jesus is permanent and lasting and cannot be taken away. So what, what Jesus is saying is, I have, I have authority over all people, but I'm only giving eternal life to those that you've given me. I'm not giving eternal life to all flesh, to all people. I'm only giving eternal life to those that you have given me. And those that you have given me, they will come. They will be raised up. They will be drawn. Now, notice Jesus' prayer. So let's keep going through this. Look at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. So you've got this world and the people that God gave him out of the world. Okay, go down to verse 9. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you've given me, for they are yours. I, Jesus is like, I'm not praying for the world. Do you see two groups? Two, there's two groups. There's the world and those who've been given to Jesus out of the world. In other words, you can't say that every single person was given to Jesus. Because if every single person was given to Jesus, every single person would come to Jesus. Every single person would be drawn to Jesus. Every single person would be raised up on the last day. Every single person would have eternal life. And we know that's not true. It's only limited to those that the Father gave him. Then you go down to verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me 
may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me before you love me, before the foundation of the world. All throughout the Gospel of John, you've got this language that Jesus keeps saying, Father, you've given me a people, you've given me a people, you've given me a people, you've given me a people. The question we've got to ask is, who are these people? Is it every single person that's ever lived, or is it limited to a group? And <coughs> we have to say it's limited to a group. How do we know who that group is? It's the group that comes. So who is the group? You can say it this way. It's Christians. It's believers. It's the elect. It's the sheep. It's the church. Whatever word you want to use. It's not every single person who's ever lived. So, question for tonight is, how do you respond to this? This may unsettle you, or it may free you. I'll, let, I'll, I'll just leave it out there for you. For some of you, if, as you wrestle with these doctrines, it may be unsettling. For others, it may be freeing. The one thing I want you just to realize is this, that Jesus is the bread of life. And as the bread of life, what he's telling us in this passage, especially in chapter 6, is that Jesus sovereignly ensures your salvation from first to last. You were given to Jesus by the Father before time. You weren't able to come to Jesus. God drew you to Jesus. You came to Jesus, and once you came to Jesus, He keeps you. You'll never be lost. He receives you. He will not cast you out, and He will make sure you get to heaven and raise you up on the last day. So from first to last, it's all about Jesus. Now, is this cause for boasting? Hey, I'm chosen, so I must be better than other people. No, this is cause for joyful humility and awe-filled worship. Let me give you a quote from Charles Spurgeon. I forgot to give it you. I've got to find it here. It's one of my fa- yeah, this is one of my favorite quotes from Spurgeon on, on the doctrine of election. He says this, I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should have never chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born, or else he would never have chosen me afterward. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with a special love. So I'm forced to accept that great biblical doctrine. Here's the question you should ask. Why did God choose me? You know what the answer is? I don't know. But I do know this. It's not because you were all that. It wasn't because you deserved it. It wasn't because you were better or more spiritually sensitive than your neighbor. It wasn't because you did something that God looked down and said, oh, wow, that person deserves it. The only reason I can give you that God chose you is because God wanted to. And it was his good pleasure to do so. And he didn't have to. I've prayed this numerous times in my prayer life. I'll I'll tell you exactly how I pray sometimes. Dear Heavenly Father, I praise you that you chose me when you did not have to. You could have very easily, dear Heavenly Father, left me in my sin, left me to go to hell, passed me over, and you would be absolutely just and worthy of worship if I went to hell. But praise you that for some strange reason you chose me and I can't boast. All I can do is receive it as a free gift and praise you. 
and walk in humility every day that somehow you chose me. So it leads to humility. You should never be prideful when talking about the doctrine of election because none of us deserve it. And if you ever get to the point where you feel like you deserve it or you're better than somebody else or you, or you kind of like look down on other believers, you do not understand the doctrine of election because the doctrine of election crushes you to the dirt to say, I did not deserve this, but God chose to do it simply because he chose to do it. And there was nothing in me that moved him to do so. So, Next week, we're going to get into Paul, Romans, Ephesians, 2 Thessalonians. We're going to deal more with this doctrine and deal a little bit more with objections and then how we do evangelism and how it all works out. So tonight, with the time that we have left, I know this is a lot of information. Is there any questions on this hot topic of predestination? Any online? Oh, I'm surprised. Yes, Troy. They will come. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I'll cover that now. That's a great question. I was going to cover that next week, but that's a great question. Did you hear? The question is, if they will come, why do we need to share the gospel? Won't they just automatically come? Okay. Two things. Two things can be true at one time. They will come. But we also know from the rest of the Bible that the means God uses for them to come is the preaching of the gospel as the means to call out the elect. So God uses means to accomplish his predestined ends. So in other words, yes, there are people that are predestined to come to faith in Christ. They will come. How does God ensure they come? Well, he could zap everybody and just make them come. And, and sometimes you, you hear of a person, you know, maybe that got saved without anybody sharing the gospel with them. But the normal way God does it is through the preaching of the gospel as the means to call out the elect. Because Jesus says in that same passage of Scripture in John 10, My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So if you're a sheep and you need to follow Jesus, what do you have to do? You have to hear his voice. How do you hear the voice of the shepherd? When the word of God is preached. So when the word of God is preached to the sheep, the sheep will hear and they will come. But that outward call, when we get to the calling, because there's an outward call and there's an inward call, but the gospel has to be, we do it because we're obedient to what the Bible says about sharing the gospel, but it's also the means God uses to call forth the elect. Because here's the one thing, does anybody here know the identity of the elect? Can I go up to somebody and say, okay, you're elect and you're not, so I'm just going to share the gospel with you. Have you ever heard me on a Sunday morning say this? If you're here this morning and you're one of the elect, please listen up because you may get saved today. But if you're not one of the elect, just keep sleeping and uh, this doesn't apply to you. Do you ever hear me say that? <laughs> yeah. What I say is, I don't, know who, I don't know who the elect and who they are not. I share the gospel with everybody and let God sort that out. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, you know what, it would be so easy if God identified the elect in London with a white stripe down their back. And I would just walk down the street and pull up their shirt and look at the white stripe and I'd only share the gospel with that person. But God hasn't done that. So Spurgeon says, I'm just going to share the gospel with everybody. 
So we don't know the identity of the elect. We're never called to know the identity of the elect. That's not our business. Only God knows that. Our business is to share the gospel and let God sort out the results through our sharing. So we share with everybody. And by the way, is anybody going to get saved if they don't hear the gospel? How is a person saved? They must hear the gospel so that they can repent and believe. How will they believe if they have not heard? How will they hear unless someone is sent? How will they send unless, unless a preacher goes? So we need to share the gospel with every single person. Here's my, here's, here's, my, here's my theology and how it works, especially on a Sunday morning or even when I go to South Asia and we go into villages and we share the gospel. I'm thinking in my mind, I'm going to call every single person here to salvation because I have no idea what's going to happen. So I'm going to share it with everybody. But in the back of my mind, I know that there are elect out there, and there's non-elect, but that's not my business to find out. So I'm not worried about election when I'm preaching the gospel. I just want to get the gospel. I, I see everybody as a candidate for the gospel. And sometimes the most um, surprising people come to faith that you would never think, and the people you think are primed for faith don't. And so you don't, you don't know. Now, I'll give you a term I haven't used the term tonight, but I'll give you the term, if I, so, if I shall. There is such a view called hyper-Calvinism. Hyper-Calvinism says we don't share the gospel because if God's going to save them, God's going to save them. We don't pray for lost people because if they're going to get saved, they're going to get saved. We're only going to go to people that show evidence of salvation, and we're only going to share the gospel with them. And really, it's like anti-missions, anti-evangelism. If God's going to do it, God's going to do it. That's the hyper-view of that's not biblical. We're commanded to go share the gospel with all people and let God sort out. And here's the thing I also have a confidence with. If I'm going to share the gospel, what, what do I know is going to happen? If they've been given by the Father to Jesus, they will come. I don't have to twist their arm. I don't have to talk them into it. I just have to give them the gospel, and if God's called them, if God's chosen them, they will come. Now, it may not be the first time I share the gospel, with, but I don't, there's nothing inherently in me trying to manipulate them to come. The, the Father has to draw them, and if they're drawn and they come, it's the work of the Lord. I was just an instrument to share the gospel. That's kind of a long answer to your question, but does that answer your question, Troy? Okay. Anybody else? Gesundheit. That's German for I was chosen. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm just joking. I'm just joking. German for God bless you. So. Any other questions? Next week we're going to talk about the fairness. Next week we're going to talk a little bit about the timing before the foundation of the world and some other issues. We're not going to spend a lot of time on election, but it is something that the Bible teaches, something that we believe here at Emmanuel, and something that there's a lot of confusion on, and so I want you to be, I don't want you to have confusion. I want you to, I'd rather you walk away saying, man, I understand everything about it, and I still don't agree with it, than to walk away like, I have no idea what he's talking about. I'd rather you walk away with all the information and so you can say, yeah, that's good, I don't, I don't quite buy it, versus I still don't understand this whole thing. That's why we're going to go a little bit more in depth. So, all right, any other thoughts, comments, snide remarks? All right, let me pray. Father, thank you for this time tonight. We are so thankful that you have um, 
called us to salvation, that you've raised us up, that you've drawn us, and Lord, that you keep us, that you'll never cast us out, and that you're going to raise us up on the last day. Lord, our, our desire is that every single person we come in contact with would have that same experience, Lord. And so let us have a boldness in sharing the gospel with others. Uh, let us have an assurance to know that um, you will keep us in your grip. And Lord, just uh, let this be... Um, a cause for humility, Lord. Never let us be prideful. Never let us think that we somehow deserve your love. But Lord, let us always be in awe that you would dare save us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.